0: Welcome to the Connect Church podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. If you would, join me in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I want to start off with a pet peeve. Uh, I've always learned that that's the best way to get started in a sermon is just rant. Uh, and so that's what I thought I would try to do. <clears throat> now, in, in, all, in all seriousness, it's not really a rant and it kind of is a pet peeve. But this kind of time of year, I really start chomping at the bit. I mean, it's, uh, the weather is starting to be more conducive to outside and uh, you start going to the nurseries and you start seeing green stuff growing and breaking loose. And I start, I start getting super excited. Now, listen, I hate a mess and I hate death. And so all winter long, my beautiful scenery outside is just, it's, it's depressing and it's miserable to look at. And in fact, I, I don't hate winter. I like winter. But it's always just a little bit longer than I want it to be, and not because I don't, and not because I don't like winter or that I hate the cold. It's that I wish that they could work simultaneously, but they, but they don't. Spring comes, uh, and by the time it gets here, I am over ready to have dirt under my fingernails. Uh, I like replenishing. I like getting leaves out. I like removing dead things away from uh, to make room for life all of those things come in. I like replacing the things that I thought was gonna make it. See, what I do is some, some things that are in pots that I really don't think, like succulents and stuff like that, some of you could care less what I'm talking about right now. Just be patient for a moment. So I bring those things inside and I hope they're gonna make it. I even bought one of those lights this year to put in my basement. It could run at nighttime. It's gonna keep my stuff alive and it does for a long time until I think, well, I'll water them tomorrow. Well, I'll get them tomorrow. And then they start withering. I start getting excited when I start seeing them come back to life. And I can't wait to get those things out of the basement, onto the deck, and I can't wait to get the pool cover off the deck. But I can't do that because there's still pollen to come. I hate pollen. I love buds. I hate pollen. Why can't it just be heaven already, right? Well, anyway, so here's the pet peeve part. Uh, I love doing a little landscaping, a little grooming, a little all of those things. But the bad thing is, it's 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 called false spring. You ever heard of it? It's a pet peeve because I get excited to be outside. Now I lived in Kentucky for almost. Huh, I used to say for most of my life. That's not true anymore for all of my learning about things years. Then we lived in Tennessee, and Tennessee is as miserable as Arkansas when it comes to weather. It it is bipolar for sure. And so we moved to Arkansas and it's spring is here, it's 70, it's 80, let's take the top off the Jeep and and we have to wear our wintered coat to to go. Because the time we get the Jeep top off, it's frigid, 30. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody relate to that at all? I'm sick of it. I'm sick of buying plants and then a frost come. Uh, and, uh, and so, anyway, I just wanted to get, that has nothing to do with the message. I'm just sick of it. <clears throat> I feel better, a little bit better. Uh, thank you. Everybody can receive their check at the door. <clears throat> I'm only kidding. Now, Israel has gone through a long winter a lot of darkness, in fact, for generations and generations, for thousands of years. And they had the hope that spring was coming. And this spring came almost with every new king. And they would look at their king as maybe he's the one that sent from God. And so this anticipation is is common until the, until the Assyrian captivity. And then once that's over, there's the Babylonian captivity. And then once that's over, it just seems to be one nation after the other that take their turn with Israel until we get to the point where we are right now and that is when Rome is in complete charge of all of Israel. Israel has no king Israel has no authority they only have their own land and they can't even work it the way they want to. So this, this spring, every time they think spring is about to spring and they get excited, there's this oh, false Spring. They start making plans only for a false spring. Now, deliverance from Rome seems in sight in Luke chapter 19. Because they've been hearing about this man who fit the description of all the prophecies. Not the prophecies of new, prophecies of old. In fact, the first prophecy, which is in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. If you remember, this is uh, after Adam and Eve had fallen and and the father comes to them in the cool of the day and he is talking to them and and giving them the curse. But a part of that curse is that out of the woman's seed, God is going to deliver uh, to them uh, the seed of a woman that will crush the serpent's head. You remember that. That's the first giving of the gospel is that something will come out of man from God that will, that will ruin sin for all time. And we, and we love that idea. And there's this, this optimism that is kind of washing over Israel as we read in Luke chapter 19. They have heard of Jesus they, they know in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus' genealogy, even through Joseph, not his biological father, but his ancestral father, he as he goes back through Joseph, Jesus is the son of David. As you look in Luke chapter 3, you will see many of those names the same. But from, from uh, Luke's account of the genealogy of Jesus, he traces it back through the mother's line, which is the bloodline also the son of David. And so Jesus is the rightful son of David on both sides. And these, these illusions To David's kingdom, who had established the first capital at Jerusalem and established Israel as a powerhouse, started swirling in their heads. And you know what they're thinking the Messiah is the one who is born of the Jews, who's going to give Judaism dominance again. He's the one that's going to run all of these Romans out of here, and we're going to be a powerhouse again, like we were in the days of David. David was the one that gave them the capital. David's the one that gave them the court. David's the one that gave them a kingdom. They had been powerful. They had been respected everywhere they went. They never lost a war well up until the first one and then downhill. The poor and the oppressed were treated with justice. Those who had nothing were, were equal to. But such glory had long departed from their minds until... They heard about this man who spoke of similar things. This Jesus, who obviously had power uh, over life, uh, over death, in fact. Now, these, these simple thinkers saw, as the religious leaders and the political leaders did not see, that the kingdom was in the pangs of birth. God would rule again among them and God would give them the keys back to their kingdom. The supremacy of Israel would again be felt among the nations and Yahweh would come back to the temple and dwell with them like he once had. So it was on the promising day of spring that Jesus made his way to Jerusalem. and So we're going to pick up reading in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. Jesus has already taught. He has already healed. He has already worked his wonders. He has said most of the things that needed to be said, at least to the community of people. The disciples are still going to get a few more lessons, uh, but but the community had already heard. And when he had said these things, he went ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew nearer to Bethphage at Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, and on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, just say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as He had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the coat, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down to Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven And glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers." He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus is making, and he knows full well why he is headed there. He knows that this is the trip that will cost him his life. And he's making his way to Jerusalem. And there is a a very recent event that encouraged his disciples, his followers, to believe in the springtime of the kingdom, that it was budding finally and about to flower. One who had marched among them, a a, a respectable uh, disciple, a respectable follower of Christ, a friend of Jesus, Lazarus, who just not long ago had experienced his own winter and springtime, and Jesus raised him from the dead. And that gives everyone in the room a little pause for there's something different about this man. Remember, it was not Jesus' teaching that took him to the cross. So for those of you who think that Jesus just taught hard truths, that's very true. That's not the thing that got him in trouble. The thing that got Jesus in trouble was that the witnesses that were in the room at Lazarus and by in the room in the community, at Lazarus' resurrection, remember when Jesus says Lazarus come forth and 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 Lazarus, I don't know how, he had already been prepared for burial levitates out and he says, unloose him. He's, he's, he's wrapped up in these uh, uh, burial garments and, and Lazarus comes out of the tomb and the Pharisees look at each other and say, we've got to do something about this cat. It, it wasn't that they disagreed with his teaching. It was they were threatened by his power. And now it was the power of Jesus that actually attracted the people who were looking for the Messiah to come. It was the power of life over death that drew many to Jesus as the Messiah. And so... Lazarus, Jesus is in Bethany. Jesus stays with Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, anytime that he's near Jerusalem. It's only two about two miles away from Jerusalem. Bethany is, that's where they live. That's where Jesus is coming from. And all along this two-mile path, the crowds are shouting. And Lazarus is a really good testimony of that power. "'Hosanna,' they said. "'Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.'" Even the king of Israel. Notice that. They don't call him the Messiah. They call him the king of Israel. Because of what happened, we call this Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Triumphant. But I wonder if we've not maybe wrongly named it that. Because a week, less than a week from today... The same groups of people, and they say whether well, the disciples or the followers of Jesus. Yeah, it's the town people that come out and are making these shouts to Jesus. If you look at all of the all that the stories have to say about it, you see that it's it's not just twelve people who are doing this. It's the multitudes of Jerusalem that are actually coming out of the city, and as Jesus is coming in through the through the East Gate. Of the city. Now, I say all of that to say this it's one thing to see Jesus' disciples doing it, it's quite another to see people who have not been exposed yet to Jesus' ministry also uh, having this high anticipation, right? But they claim that he is the king of Israel. Without a crown, without a scepter, without an inauguration, they already recognize him as someone who is quite different. But I want you to notice something. In in just a few days, they're going to move from shouting Hosanna to crucify him. But it's not not what you think. We talk about them being wishy-washy in in their mindset. I'm not sure that they are. I'm not sure that most of them changed what they thought. What had happened is the truth of who Jesus really was 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 changed right in front of their eyes. They were excited that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, in a few days, they are disappointed to find out that maybe he's not. Because a Messiah would blast Pilate with the words of his mouth. The Messiah would mow down all of the Romans who came to arrest Jesus in the garden. But this Messiah is weak. And he promised power. This Messiah is quiet when what we need is a loud voice. This Messiah says, put down your sword instead of fight with me to death and freedom. No, I don't think that it was their hearts that shifted. Because this was what they always wanted. It was Jesus that left them disappointed. Because the Messiah that they wanted was not the Messiah they needed. And Jesus, Jesus was focused on being the Messiah they needed at the expense of the one they thought they wanted. Jesus was talking about a different kingdom. Jesus wasn't talking about Jerusalem. Jesus was talking about new peace that could belong to them. Not the peace that the world offers do I offer to you, but my peace. Jesus is offering them another world. He's offering them another crown, a crown of righteousness instead of a golden crown that will tarnish. Jesus offering them a seat in the throne room of heaven when they're settled for a throne in the capital city. And Jesus refused, refused to give them anything less than what the Father wanted. So, very soon, their songs of adoration. This is the danger of adoring Jesus instead of surrendering to his authority. This is the danger of just becoming a fan of Jesus. Because often, you'll be disappointed. And I don't say that lightly. What does it mean to be disappointed with Jesus? Who in here? Let's just be honest for a moment. Who in here has not been disappointed with Jesus? If you've known him for very long, you'll experience disappointment. The person that you pray to for healing that doesn't get better. The job that you desperately need that never comes. The freedom That you want, the relationship to be restored, the things that you want that doesn't take place. And it leaves us disappointed in Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, those were never promises that Jesus made. Jesus causes us to look beyond those temporary issues into another kingdom. And there, He never disappoints. If you'll see the Messiah that He is, the son of God that he is, you can't be disappointed because he's always right. That where we should be disappointed is in our selfishness. See, we would rather have more winter than this spring. We would rather have Caesar as our king than this Messiah. We choose Rome over God. That's what they're crying out. They didn't want the truth of Jesus. They wanted their imaginations of Jesus. And sadly, quite honestly, I think that's what many have turned Jesus into today. The ones who said, we will never bow, Lord. We we will never give up. You will never be killed in Jerusalem because we're going to fight right beside you. That's what Peter said. And that's what he will remember later when he's running off into the woods. That's what Judas said just before he betrayed Jesus. And I wonder how much different are we than them. Jesus had disappointed them too. This, this was not what they had said yes to either. Every hope that had promised life, all the energy that had gotten them into getting ready. Well, guess what? When Jesus revealed to them another kingdom, it was not the kingdom they wanted and it frosted and all the life was lost. Not yet. He's not really the one. And 2,000 years later, the Jews are still waiting for the one to give them a voice. Well, there are, there are three situations. I'm almost finished, believe it or not. But I, I want to run you through three situations through this passage that we just read where, where there was tragedy in the triumph. Okay, And I think that they will speak to our life today as well. In, in Luke chapter 19, verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, well, i tell you, if I, if I tell them to be silent, the very stones would cry out. As Jesus rode in, there was a large crowd that had gathered. We find that, and I'm going to now go through the, the Gospels and kind of point out some other details. But in Matthew 21, verse 8, it says, there was a very large crowd that had gathered to give him a rousing welcome. And they were praising him by shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Luke 19, 38 also adds that they call him the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Back to Matthew chapter 21 verse 10. It says that the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred by the entry of Jesus into the city. Verse 37 of Luke 19 says that the people joyfully praised God in loud voices. For what? For the miracles that they had seen. Why were they praising Jesus? Because they had seen some miracles. They were praising Jesus for what they had seen with their eyes, the, the wonders and the signs that excite us. And then in Matthew chapter 21, it says, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now this seems encouraging. It seems Season shifting, but it's not quite. What they should have seen is who Jesus really is in His teaching, His heart, His view, His philosophy, His love, His glorifying of the Father. But all they could see or wanted to see was His miracles. They were impressed by what Jesus would be able to do to their enemies, but they were not impressed by what Jesus could do in them if they would surrender. See, they were looking for an external kingdom, not an internal kingdom. When Jesus was arrested, even even at the point when Pilate said, do some stuff and prove this, when the disciples, the followers of Jesus, begin to demand him to prove, do some things and people will believe Jesus refused. It's when Jesus refused to do miracles that the shouts of Hosanna moved to Christ for murder. Look at this. They called Jesus the son of David. And again, rightly so. Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus qualifies as the Messiah. But not just the Messiah of the Jews, but the Messiah of all mankind. He's not the one born of a Jewish woman. He's the one born of women that would ruin the sin nature in all of those who would claim him. He was the Messiah for a deeper problem than Rome. But they were, and I want you to understand, I want you to hear me closely. I'm not going to get lost in the woods here, but this is a a message for today. They were focused on nationalism and their past glory rather than the salvation from their sinfulness that they needed for their future. They were focused on selfishness. They were focused, focused on comfort rather than selflessness and surrender. You see, they were focused. On the wrong direction. They had fallen for a trap that so many today have fallen for. And that nationalism and salvation is the same thing. That one is proof of the other. And it's not. It's not the same thing. They were so wrapped up in thinking that they were favored by God as a nation that they could no longer see God's kingdom right in front of them. They had been so caught up that they were God's favorite that they forgot to recognize that they were favored by God to be the missionaries to the rest of the world. That was their calling, not just to be favored, but to be a blessing to other nations. But they got so wrapped up in being the sons of Abraham, they forgot that they were the sons and daughters of God. They were so excited to have their rights that they couldn't see their rights belong to Him. They should have been calling Him the Son of God, but instead they settled for the Son of David. They were focused on their nation's glory rather than the kingdom's glory. They were focused on their power over others rather than seeing their need to surrender to self. You see, they couldn't see him for the Messiah that he was because their interpretation of what the Messiah was to be had shifted in their minds. They'd become lazy. All they could see was the Messiah that they wanted and they were missing him completely. And I want to tell you, I think a lot of us and a lot of people like us have, are falling for the same trap. Redefining Jesus. Who is he? What will he do? What does he promise? What do those words really mean? What can we expect? And the focus becomes humanism, becomes selfishness, becomes the keys to a better life. It all becomes about the things you can touch and see and feel instead about walking in obedience to him and, and living in another kingdom. So when they saw Jesus was taking up the wrong scepter and the wrong crown, and he would no longer perform miracles. Their hosannas shifted to murder. But there was a group of people there that never surrendered to Jesus. And that was the spiritual leaders. In fact, when people began to claim uh, the, the truth about Jesus, they began to put them down. And they told Jesus, can you imagine reprimanding Jesus? Saying, tell these people to quit praising you. Talk about being spiritually dead. The only one in the crowd that day that was fully obedient was a donkey. (laughs) Let's go further into the story. This is in verse 45. It's a tragic thing that the temple had to be cleansed, but sometimes we break these stories up into multiple sermons, and I don't think we see the context for which they are. In verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer. Now, it's important for us to see this in Luke chapter 19, but that's not the only time this story is told in Scripture. That's the benefit of the other Gospels. You see, the temple was the center of Jewish worship. It had this majestic appearance. It's the place where God promised that his presence would be there as long as they were obedient to him. It was the most precious place for God's people. They would not be more holy than they would be at the temple. But in Mark chapter 11 verse 11, very important, very important. Jesus rides in to Jerusalem. The first place he goes is to the temple. Mark 11:11 11, 11 says that he looked, he walked into the temple and he looked around and saw everything. And it was it was dark. It was late. And Jesus gets up and he goes back to Bethany. Now, you go back to Luke chapter 19. This is when Jesus comes in to the temple and he drives it. But this isn't the first time Jesus is in the temple. So for those who think Jesus is acting impulsively and Jesus is angry and he just kind of loses it for a moment and he takes it out on these vendors, that's not the case. Jesus was here last night and he took a look at everything and he went home. I don't know how much he prayed about it. I don't know how much sleep that he got the night before, but he come up with a solution of what needed to take place. Back to Luke chapter 19. It's also uh, interesting. This is, is also found in Matthew chapter 21 verse 12 and uh, in Mark 11, 15 through 16. It had become a place of unscrupulous vendors. Now, Again, those of you who have heard me preach on this very much, you know how this works. There were people that had raised... Sheep or pigeons or whatever the sacrifices would be, and they would have these booths set up inside the temple, and instead of raising your own, instead of buying the best, they would sell second best. And what the scriptures required in the Old Testament was the first fruits, the, the animals without spot or without blemish, the ones to which were given great amounts of care to be healthy. These were to be the sacrifices not these broken animals, these starving animals with spots and wrinkles that you can go a dime a dozen and uh, 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 spend out all kinds of money on second-rate animals to bring to the priest to offer sacrifice for your sins. These people had lost their minds. They were making a profit on God's kingdom citizens and the citizens didn't care. Jesus saw all of it. You see, what was happening was they had set the obedience to Scripture aside and they were satisfied with just going through the motions. What does the Bible say? Take an animal, kill it, you're forgiven. So that's what we do. Hey, how much for two pigeons? How much for a sheep? How much for... And in this majestic place of worship is sheep feces and pigeon poop and... The worst imaginable things in, in the holy place of God. And Jesus looks and he sees it. He's broken hearted. He comes back tomorrow and takes care of it. But if you look in Mark chapter 11 verse 15, it says, and, and you know we, we hear people say, well, you shouldn't sell stuff in church. Well, maybe we shouldn't. I think that's missing the point. I think it's included in the point. But in verse in Mark 11:15 it says to those who sold and those who bought. This is Jesus says equal righteous anger for those who have turned the temple into something it wasn't supposed to be. Now listen, they just turned Jesus into something he wasn't supposed to be. And now he realizes they've turned the temple into something. It wasn't supposed to be. In fact, Jesus' own words were, you've taken a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. What den of thieves? Den of thieves would be to those who were just stealing from the common people who had no option. No, Jesus is angry at both. Those who bought and those who sold had both have both played the place of thieves. Because they were all robbing God of His ultimate glory. They they should have been giving communion to God. They should have been giving reverence to God. They should have been giving prayer to God. But instead, they were withholding. Because they could not get into His presence with this behavior. They were all stealing from God. They were stealing themselves from Him. Were they at the temple? Yes, performing sacrifices? Yes. Spending money? Yes. Communing with God? No. For the so for those who want Jesus just to meet your felt needs list, your checklist if Jesus needs to do, if Jesus is really God, he'll do all the things I want him to do. Well, listen, he's not that kind of messiah. His kingdom's bigger than your kingdom. For those who want to just go to church but not surrender your life in a relationship with God, that's not how it works. And I'm also fearful that we have forgotten what Paul said when it's not just about coming to church. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you not recognize that every moment of every day is the ability to commune with him? And so many of us have turned that house of prayer into a den of thieves because we claim that we know God. We claim that we walk with him our heart is full of vendors buying and selling compartments of who we are. Giving second-rate sacrifices. Listen, if you give a second-rate sacrifice, you're worshiping a second-rate God. God made a covenant with His people. He gave them direction. He He gave them the right to obey. But rather than obey... They chose to just go through the motions. Just before that, Jesus is on his way back to Bethany. and and, Maybe he didn't have sleep. Jesus never sinned, so we know that whatever he felt, it wasn't sin. It didn't come from a place of sin. But, But over Mark chapter 11, I believe it's verse 14, when they're walking back to Jerusalem, he sees the fig tree, and it's got so many huge leaves on it. Beautiful fig tree. Lots of leaves, no figs, no figs. There's no fruit on this fig tree, just promises of spring, but only winter. What's the point of a fig tree if it doesn't produce figs? It's about the same point of a Christian who doesn't produce Christ. So Jesus curses the fig tree and he looks at it and he sees no figs, only fruit, only promises, only mean tos, only potential. And Jesus said, may no one ever eat of your tree, of your fruit again. Jesus is cursing the fig tree. And then he goes into the temple and he does the same thing with this, these promises that people are so quick to make. This brings us to the last thing. Luke nineteen forty four. 44. It's, uh, it's a tragic thing that people didn't recognize God's time. You go into the Old Testament and there's lots of times where, you know, it's obvious that this is prophecy, and then you get into the New Testament, and many times the gospel writers write so that the prophecies would be true, or so that you know this truth would be was foretold, or whatever the case may be. I mean, if you missed that Jesus was the was the promised one of God, you really missed it. Uh, you had to intentionally really bypass it. So. <laughs> Jesus is actually here fulfilling prophecy by referring to a future event when in AD 70 Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and barricades put all around the city and the temple itself will be torn down. That's in verse 43 and 44. You can go back and read it if you would like. But he says this, They will not leave one stone upon another in you, Jerusalem, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now this is when Jesus is up on the mountain overlooking Jerusalem. This is just before he throws the the money changers uh, and uh, the buyers out of the house of prayer. What if Jesus pauses for just a moment? When he reflects on, they're they're not understanding who I really am. And they're not understanding where I'm really going. And they're not understanding what I want to do in them and they're not understanding obedience and they're not understanding righteousness and they're not understanding they're not understanding one thing he says he was up on the mountain overlooking Jerusalem he saw them as you know he said I, 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 it was like sheep without a shepherd like a like a, i would i would like a hen i would take my my wings and just wrap you in and keep you protected but you wouldn't recognize the time of your visitation. You you didn't see who I was. You wouldn't be protected by me. But here's the here's the kicker. It's a tragic thing that they didn't know the time of their visitation. And Jesus tells them that there's judgment coming because you would not determine that you are going to follow the Messiah you need, the temple you need, the time that you need, but you're going to leave it all up to yourself to choose. But here's the here's the kicker for me. The Bible says that in Luke 19 Jesus is up there he weeps. He weeps for Jerusalem. Like he wept for his friend Lazarus. He weeps. He's stirred with emotion. He has compassion upon them. Compassion doesn't just see the need. Compassion meets the need, and so Jesus in that moment was more determined than ever that he would die for the very people who were betraying him and making a mockery of everything, including the Pharisees who said, tell these kids to be quiet. It's, it's funny to me that, that Jesus did not love them less on that day than they did he did on the day they shouted Hosanna. It's interesting to me that, that Jesus, knowing that Judas is going to betray him, Jesus washes their feet, his feet. That Jesus, walking along this path, hearing, Hosanna, Hosanna, we love you. You're the greatest thing ever. Can I have your autograph? In a week, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What who is this? So, this morning, wrapping it up, I want to ask you when you look at the prophecies of Zechariah or the prophecies of Isaiah or the prophecies, or even going back to, to, the, to the Jehu, when they're laying down their cloaks on him and he's riding into the city on a donkey and they say, Hosanna, you are the rightful king. All of these prophecies that move up to Jesus. And they could not see the time of their visitation. And they missed it. Well, that's that's my prayer. Is that here he is riding into Jerusalem today. He has fulfilled every possible prophecy. And he still, regardless of what you have ever done, to whomever you have ever done it to, the worst, darkest day of your entire life was the day Jesus looked upon you with love, and he weeps, and he says, if you only would, because he already has. Do you know the time of your visitation? I mean, this is going back 2,000 years where he came for the first time, but this same Jesus who came into Jerusalem is coming again. And he has fulfilled every prophecy to prove that to us. Do you know the time? Can you see? Here's how you know if you can see. Is it you're surrendering to his kingdom and not yours? That your life has become a life of prayer and honor. A place of reverence where God's presence can dwell freely. That we walk in his power, not in our own. That's how you know if you know the time. Not if you have some mental checklist. What's your life look like? What's your obedience look like? Are you trusting him and obeying? Or are you just waiting for another Messiah? Regardless, he loves you. And you can't stop him from loving you. I pray that today you'll begin to take note of the visitation that's at hand. Let's pray together. Lord, just like, it's so easy for us to go back 2,000 years and point fingers and berate those Jews who did not understand. And yet when we look at our current ex- exchange as, as Christians, it's so easy to see today. Christians, we don't understand the time of our visitation. That your second coming is close and yet we've turned our lives into consumers. We've turned your testimony into a feel-good story where we're the central character. God forgive us. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a conviction where there's laziness. Give us unction where there's excuses. Give us struggle where there's comfort. Because, Lord, we want it to be about you. We need it to be about you, regardless of what we want. And I know that there are people in this room right now that recognize the time of their visitation, but they're resistant. So Lord, I pray that today would be a day where we would recognize and respond. Let me just say to the room, if you're, keep your head down and your eyes closed, but if you're here this morning and you have never given your life to Jesus, Oh you know that he is who he says he is but you're not walking in obedience to him you've never surrendered your life to his authority I mean you're walking alongside of him shouting hosanna but you don't mean it Would you just very quietly and quickly just slip your hand up so that I can know how to pray for you I'm not I would never embarrass you I'm not going to ask anything of you you know personally Other than I just want to be able to pray for you uh, for a moment. Would you just slip your hand up and let me let me know how to pray? Anybody be bold enough to say I'm not walking with Christ? And I know I should, but I'm not? How many of you this morning would be honest enough to say? I really feel like a lot of my life, my, my my walk with Christ is just going through the motions. There was a time when I meant it. There was a time when I believed it. But I feel like I'm just going through the motions and I have forgotten who He is. I have forgotten what He promised. I've forgotten who I can be in Him. Would you be honest enough just to slip your hand up and say, Pastor, would you pray for me so that I can make a firm commitment and restore what's been lost. I see that hand. Anybody else? Hands all over the place. We're going we're gonna to pray. And if, if you feel so inclined, if, if you have never made a decision to follow Jesus, or maybe you're not sure if you ever really meant it, your life is like a fig tree. Lots of promises, but there's no fruit. Would you, would you make a decision this morning and just take a few steps forward and let somebody pray with you and introduce you to the, not the king of the Jews, but the king of kings. I'm gonna ask you to stand if you would. And if there's a decision that you need to make, I'm not not going to tell you something bad's going to happen to you later. I I don't know what God has planned for all of our lives. But I am going to say this. There there will be a time, if you don't make a decision, there will be a time when you will have missed your time of visitation. Don't Don't let that be true of us. If there's a decision that you know you need to make, Make that decision today. And I'm going to ask you to come forward and let's pray together. So if there's a decision that you know you need to make, go ahead and step out from where you are now and uh, and come and let's, let's pray together. Chris, do you mind to just continue to play? If you want to pray, you can close your eyes and bow your head. We're going to. Stand here for just a moment. Give people an opportunity to be obedient to the Lord. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your your desire for us. That regardless of whether we're fake or whether we're in faith, makes no difference to your love. But Lord, I I recognize that there, there is a time when grace can't be manifested. There's a time when your spirit will no longer work within men. And your word says that without the spirit drawing us, we can't come to the Father. And so Lord, if in this moment of tension, if your spirit is working, I pray that we would respond. I thank you for your love that will never die. Lord, I, I pray specifically for that spirit's movement in our life that would quicken us to life. And I pray that we would no longer have our excuses, our fake faces, our masks, our pretending, our going through the motions, our false confessions, but that we would walk with you in you. And that we would move, Lord, from from recognizing who you are to knowing who you will be for all eternity. And that if we truly believe in your appearing, what would keep us from sharing that truth with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family? So I pray, Lord, you would empower us to go from this place with your authority. You haven't just called us to believe. You have called us to be. And then you've empowered us to be. So we praise you. We glorify your holy name. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to convict us. Continue to put a sense of need. Those that are here today who know that there's a decision needs to be made. Lord, I pray that the decision was made, perhaps even where they are. But Lord, for those who could not muster the faith today to do it, I pray that your spirit would continue to pursue them. And while this comes to the end of our time together, it does not come to the end of your time. So go with us, Lord, we pray, in power and confidence and boldness. And may we not turn our faith into what we've read about today. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.